Welcome. Hi, I'm Mickey, and this is Wikipedia, where I sit down and chat to doctors, professors, athletes, practitioners, and experts in their fields related to health, nutrition, fitness, and well-being. And I'm delighted that you're here. Hey everyone, it's Mickey here. You're listening to Wikipedia, and this week on the podcast, I speak to Marty Kendall creator of the Nutrient Optimizer and Data-Driven Fasting, programs he has created to help thousands of people navigate their way to better health through food. We discuss the impact that dietary fat has on insulin, the nutrients that certain dietary patterns fall short on, i.e. the carnivore diet or a vegan diet, protein-sparing modified fasts, which obviously both Marty and I are big fans of, and how his program, Data-Driven Fasting, allows people to use their own data through the use of continuous glucose monitors and measuring your glucose levels to determine fasting and eating windows and food intake that suits you. So, Marty Kendall is an engineer who seeks to optimize nutrition using a data-driven approach. Marty's interest in nutrition began 18 years ago to help his wife, Monica, better control her type 1 diabetes, and we discussed that a little bit in today's interview. Since then, he has developed a systemized approach to nutrition tailored for a wide range of goals, contexts, and preferences. And over the past five years, Marty has shared his research over at OptimizingNutrition.com. He has developed Nutrient Optimizer and Data-Driven Fasting, both tools to guide thousands of people on their journey towards nutritional optimization. And Marty can be found at optimizingnutrition.com and there is a link to this in the show notes. Before we crack on into the interview though, I would just like to remind you that the best way to support the podcast is to hit subscribe button on the platform you listen to your podcasts on. This increases the exposure that Wikipedia has out there amongst the thousands of other podcasts that are released weekly. The more exposure we get, the more opportunity people get to benefit from information that my guests share with us. All right team, please enjoy the interview that I had with Marty Kendall every academic sort of institute but re regardless I think it's great that they're looking at your data and your information of sort of real life putting into practice yeah. not those low carb techniques but more about actual food quality because that is just it's I think it's missed even by the important stuff is seems to be missed by academic yep. institutes a lot yeah, of time. yeah I'm just so passionate about food quality and quantifying food quality and it's like what do you need nutrients from food it's like who disagrees with that hopefully nobody but nobody seems to focus yeah. on it and we can quantify it so it, it all just makes so much damn sense to me and um yeah i money i agree and you're very from as i understand quite diet agnostic yeah. um so actually can we kick off, and we'll kick off the interview, um, with you letting listeners know a little bit of your background, because obviously, well, obvious to me, <laughs> because I know a little bit about you, you haven't come down that traditional sort of route of studying nutritional sciences, um, but it was more your wife's um, type 1 diabetes that got you interested. Yeah, yeah. Um, 20 years ago, I married Monica, who happens to have type 1 diabetes, um, Neither of us really understood much about nutrition or diet or how 
food-influenced insulin. And um, then she said, why don't we start thinking about having kids? And I was like, okay, cool. Let's have a look at that. And um, and then her sister, who was a doctor, said, hey, you really need to get your blood sugars under control and your diabetes under control because that's really important. And then you start looking into the, the long list of complications of diabetic pregnancy and they're pretty scary. So that's incredibly motivating. And we were lucky enough to find a, a doctor at that time who was able to give us information on the link between, you know, carb dosing for the amount of insulin you need, which was, you know, it was amazing that even back then it was unknown for her because she'd had such a poor education about how to use insulin to dose for carbs and we haven't come a lot further since then. But um, that really helped us dive into how to manage carbohydrate with insulin and I suppose it wasn't until 10 years after that 10 years ago I stumbled across Rob Wolf and um, and then Jason Fung sort of directed me to look at some stuff on the food insulin index which I was able to download the data and sort of analyze it to understand what foods raise insulin and that helped me quantify foods to uh, optimize insulin dosing for money. So the, the the thing about type 1 is you just don't want to be dosing massive industrial amounts of insulin every meal. You're just on this massive roller coaster, which is really hard to manage. So quantifying uh, the insulin requirement for food based on not just carbs, but fiber and protein and fat was really fascinating, really helpful for her. And that really took off in the, in the keto sphere because keto was starting to trend really hard at that point in time so started a blog and that blew up and um, yeah it's just been a continual journey from there to understand not just for type, you know type 1 diabetes management but what different people need from their food it's not just insulin management and it's not just insulin with food and it's it's much more than that beyond just the, the insulin keto minimizing carbohydrate aspect, which I'm sure we'll dive into more today. Yeah, Marty, that's interesting that you talk about something called the, the food insulin index and that you sort of did a deep dive into it because, of course, this is not something I hear a lot of people talk about, even those people who do have type 1 diabetes or work with people with type 1 diabetes. And and I think it wasn't until I um, had an interview with Andrew Kutnick. Oh, yeah, he's amazing. He is, right? Smart guy, really strong. <laughs> Dark, yeah, yeah. Arnie Dykeman said he was the strongest guy he'd ever met in person. He's a really nice guy <laughs> and incredibly smart. Yeah, he totally is. And then he was just talking about the complexities of how insulin in the body responds to not just, or how your blood sugars respond to not just insulin, but of course, stress and activity and and that very much um, uh, give one dose for this particular carbohydrate in food completely misses the point. And how is it that even like in 2022, this is still that sort of like prevailing advice that people get. Yeah, yeah. I, I suppose a lot of my motivation is just being angry at the poor advice that people like my wife get. And I imagine the quality of life she could have had if her mum had known what we know now when mm. she was diagnosed at 10. And um, ironically, our, our 16-year-old son was diagnosed with type 1 in December. So, um He's thriving. He's he's preparing for a, a a year after diagnosis. He's um 
wanting to set a, a world deadlift record for under 16 oh, um, on the 10th of December. So, you know, it, it, it's it's just a different world with the right information and type 1 can nearly be a, a superpower in some ways um, to, to, to help people partly because it helps them focus on the quality of their diet and take it really seriously. But, yeah, on the, um, the food insulin index, basically um, carbs will raise insulin the most, um, fibre will have less, in a, less of an effect, protein has a, a longer insulin response and fat has a much longer insulin response. But I suppose going forward, I realise that it's it's not just the insulin response to our food. Our body produces insulin to keep it from disintegrating fundamentally. Like if mm. a type 1 diabetic doesn't take their basal insulin, their all their stored energy just disintegrates into the bloodstream and, and on a low-carb diet, 80% of your insulin is just to stop your body from disintegrating. So for you know, for weight loss, for everybody else who's not injecting insulin, the, the priority needs to be for satiety and optimizing your diet to improve satiety so you get the nutrients you need, the protein you need, are able to manage your appetite and then reduce your, your body fat so you need less basal insulin, and that's another thing I get annoyed with. In 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 you know everybody talking about insulin and insulin resistance at the moment, there's no focus on what's the root cause of insulin resistance. It's mm. energy toxicity and and optimizing your diet to um, you know optimize body composition basically that enables you to improve your basal insulin requirements. So that's my other rant for the moment. I'll, I got it out of my system. Yeah, no, I love it. I love it, and um, I do find it. I, I like how you talk about what impacts on insulin because, of course, there was all blood sugar as well. Like I like when you're talking about that, I'm thinking about the glycemic index, which of course was very hot in the 90s and early 2000s. And I was part of the cohort of postgraduate students. Yeah, yeah, trying to earn my keep at... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> By being a guinea yeah, pig in the yeah. lab. And, I mean, it was fraught with like just limitations. Like we didn't really follow rules and we were like nutrition students. But regardless, it's, you know, food tends to be still talked about in health professional circles by virtue of the the glycemic index or at least carbohydrate is whereas now we know so much more about that individual variation in addition to that food matrix that you're sort of alluding to like it it just surprises me how long these it, these things seem to take to be to sort of pervade those academic circles i suppose yeah, yeah. The, um, I was talking to Amy Rush at Low Carb Down Under and, and a few other people about just how challenging the dietary guidelines is just not something you're allowed to do as a nutritionist. It's not part of your scope. This is the gospel and thou shalt follow it. And um, going even, even further back in my history, I grew up as an, a, a Seventh-day Adventist until I was 10. So that's the the hub, the... the uh, epicenter of nutritional belief and they have some very strong beliefs around food and uh, you know they're trying to bring Jesus back to earth sooner by converting everybody to a plant-based diet and um, that belief is even stronger than financial conflict of interest and that's been very powerful um, yeah, so there's a lot of entrenched dogma and as an engineer, I'm very, you know, I believe data and I'm, I'm very, very sceptical of any named diet or belief system or just, you know, 
we get groupthink and and we we develop these really strong communities around nutrition and what we eat and it just limits what we can do and how we can optimize it for different people and different goals because one size doesn't fit all plant based doesn't work for everybody keto doesn't work for everybody what does keto mean anyway really it just means so many things to so many different people that it's a, a nebulous non-meaningful term anymore so if you can just quantify it a little bit you can fine-tune it for different people with different goals completely and i um that sort of leads to well first of all i think as an engineer you have the advantage of not having that sort of prior uh, learning through that university system. I've been trained in the system. Exactly. It's so, like, people are like, oh, my God, but I grew up thinking that, um, you know, margarine was better for you. And I'm like, well, imagine sitting in a university lecture hall being, you know, told yeah. that. So it's, you know, that it takes... Yeah. And you, you, you lose your licence if you don't preach the gospel. So, certainly yeah. for some people, it, that's, that's so true. I'll, I just need it to work for my wife and my son, and I can see instant feedback on the glucose and insulin and body weight exactly what those foods do yeah, so yeah. i've got a bit i can see under the cover of how metabolism works which i find incredibly fascinating as an engineer oh, I, I completely understand so so and you're very focused as you said on food quality and you've developed a number of tools that people can use like mm. your master classes and your programs yep. marty can you sort of talk us through from your optimizing sort of nutrition uh, group of programs or suite of programs, like what kind of process does someone, if they're interested in figuring out their, the diet for them, what process would they go through? Yeah, we've got um, three different programs, just to give a, a high-level overview. One is a macros masterclass, one is a micros masterclass, and another is data-driven fasting, which is just for people who don't want to track their food they can just use their glucose as a fuel gauge to guide what and when they eat but the most important thing is really to work out what are you doing now and how can you tweak that towards optimal we we know where optimal is from a lot of data analysis but like things like a protein spray modified fast and, and dialing a protein percentage up to 60 or 70 percent or, or dialing in your micronutrients to have a really high diet quality score. That that's optimal, but it's a really sharp, shiny tool. And people who jump from zero to hero overnight, like everybody's prone to do, they go, oh, "It's January one. I'm going to lose weight because I gained so much weight over Christmas. I'm just going to jump in and you know be a diet hero." Um, and as an engineer, somehow I spend all my time counselling people to chill out and develop progressive habits that lead to sustainable success. So it's like, yeah, increasing your protein percentage, increasing your nutrient density will improve your satiety, enable you to lose weight quicker. But if you dial it up so much that you fall off the wagon and you are really, really hungry, because even on even though protein is the most satiating macronutrient per calorie, your body still needs some energy from the food you're eating because you can't release all your stored energy overnight. You'll still be hungry. You, you need to work out where you are now so we get people to track their food for a week and then progressively tweak it by saying, how much protein are you getting now? How can we dial back the, the fat and carbs a little bit while still prioritizing protein? That's the, the macros masterclass. And then in the micros masterclass, it's a similar 
process of tracking your current diet which, and then asking which micronutrients are you currently missing. Let's dial in foods that contain more of the minerals that your diet is missing. Then let's get the, the vitamins your diet is currently missing. And then let's try to optimize the, the overall diet quality. But you don't need to go from a diet quality score of 50 to 100. It's like going from 40 to 60 or 40 to 50 over four weeks is a really great win that gets people a long way down the track. They form new habits around food. They can lose weight at half to 1% per week by dialing in the diet quality without falling off the wagon. So yeah, that that's that's my thing with optimizing. It's not about going to 100% overnight. It's not foot to the floor. It's let's progressively improve your diet in a way that improves your habits, develops new habits that you enjoy. You love this food. You've, you've morphed your baseline diet and tweaked it just a little bit to improve it enough to make progress but not so much to go i hate this food at the end of four weeks and just you know go back to the maccas and pringles you you're really craving you know you once you get the nutrients your body needs you lose interest in those foods but if you push it too hard you you fall off the wagon yeah interesting you say that because i i feel like um for most people, what they so when people come to me for their individual goals, a lot of the time they actually want to do that zero to a hundred approach because they're in for the quick wins and the everybody yeah, does, yeah. And so it's it can be and and actually some people's personalities I think are really suited to it, but. When you've got a, a group of people sort of coming together, it's you, you're much. I, I totally agree with that sort of progressive approach and talking to them about the the benefit of the small change because they will notice it. They just won't get that massive. Um, I, I don't know. Uh, uh, accelerated weight loss, if you like, at, at the get go. Yeah, yeah, and accelerated weight loss is great, but. Most people find they get really hungry eventually. And yeah, we, we, like I said, we've designed the sharp, shiny tool that will get you to optimal, but your amygdala, your instincts, your survival instincts, your cravings, your habits don't understand that yet. So yeah, maybe 2% of people can jump into a micros masterclass and just completely overhaul their diet. They're really data-driven and love all the numbers and just create treat it like a, a massive Sudoku puzzle and solve it overnight. Like that's like your brain is different. Um, that 90% of people just need to go, okay, I'm going to try something a little bit more adventurous this week. And as they do that and give their body the nutrients and protein it needs, they they stop craving the garbage food and they go, okay, that, that wasn't too bad. I tried that meal and I'm going to try another one that's a little bit more hardcore and just continue to level up. And yeah, yeah, half to 1% per week is is heroic and fantastic. And you like the people who get, you know, some people can get 2% a week weight loss, which is fantastic, but you know, not all those people are able to land easily and not rebound. So yeah, that's where we, we I really care about people developing lifelong habits that in six months they've found their new routine that they can stick with and it's changed their lives in, in a way that will continue with them for the long term. Yeah, nice. And I know that you're a fan of the protein leverage 
theory and as as am I the idea that you know protein is the th- is is one of the major things that we will continue to eat food until we meet our protein requirements what what kind of protein amounts are you seeing um, with all of your data because well that's the other thing as well is you've now got thousands of data points with which you can yeah, yeah, yeah. sort of draw on to sort of um, give you some sort of insight so what are some insights? Yeah, um, we've got 140,000 days of data from 40,000 people that have used Nutrient Optimizer over over five years. Wow. So it's just a massive data set that I can keep on mining and answering all those questions that I've, you know, you argue on Facebook all the time, but when you dive into the data, you can answer them for realsies. Um, yeah, the average protein, like there was a study that Robin Hyman Simpson just released that showed that the average Aussie protein intake is about 18.3. The data from the US might be 12 to 15% protein. Um, and, and we guide people to progressively increase their protein intake. So they find what they're doing initially. Low carb, this might be 20, 25, 30%. And as they work up to 40%, they tend to get really nice results in terms of of weight loss. So that's a matter of dialing back fat and carbs. Um, 50, 60% protein is, is rare mm-hmm. and people are able to, to stick to that in the data. So from a practical point of view, we just say let's progressively dial up that protein percentage across the week to... 40% is a goal if you get to 50 and you're um, not, you know, chowing down on the, the donuts and peanut butter a couple of nights a week, then that's 50 is great. But, uh, you know, 30 is amazing for people who have started at 15. So, yeah, it's, it's a matter of let's nudge it up a little bit. And Robin Harman Simpson's work shows that if if the population nudged their protein percentage up by, you know, to five percent, it'd make a massive difference in how much everybody ate. Yeah, interesting. And your, you know, it's what people started. People I work with, they seem to struggle initially with getting the protein without the fat. And then, of course, so this is where so my initial interest in nutrition probably lay with like Bill Phillips and the yep. Body for Life and the the right. physique sort of world. Yeah. I was never involved in it, but just, you know, um, happy to uh, digest the information. But so this is when you sort of bring in those, the light cottage cheese and the egg whites yeah. and foods which yeah. actually have sort of lost, gone out of vogue because the fat's not in it. Like I definitely notice a real yeah. pushback. Whenever I mention something like low-fat yogurt, I get a little bit of a... Um, People get triggered by that I idea, don't so, they? Yeah. What's your experience with that? Like is, are you similarly find the same? Oh, yeah. yeah. Um, I feel like our classes are a keto rehab <laughs> um, detox sort of zone that you know people have gone through keto and we believed you know fat doesn't spike insulin and so fat's effectively a free food and you know so people are just chowing down this unlimited fat and you know i had a dnm with steve finney about eating fat to satiety but you know fat as a macronutrient is the least satiating nutrient per calorie um you'll still consume some fat and fat's a fantastic source of energy um but it, it, it comes with protein. So, you know, most people, you can't just go, I'm just going to double down on the, the bacon, butter and nuts to get my protein because you'll eat so many calories. 
calories are unfortunately a thing, energy balance is still a thing, but dialing in your macros provides the tidy that enables you to eat less over the day. So yeah, people need to go, okay, a few days of tracking works magic. Yeah. And then you go, okay, I'm getting a lot less protein than I thought. And oh my gosh, look at all the fat I'm getting from my dressings and nuts and all these things. And then it's a matter of, let's dial back the added fat. You don't need the butter and bulletproof coffee if you're trying to lose body fat. Let's dial back the nuts because they're just incredibly easy to overeat. Um, and then to really dial it down, it's like, okay, let's have a egg white omelette with some whole eggs and some egg whites. Mm. So that's those sort of substitutions. Yeah. But, um, but if you just go from a, a 10% therapeutic keto diet because people thought keto was magic and if I get my ketones high enough, I'll – It'll be the body fat I'm burning, not the dietary fat I'm burning. I don't know how so many of us thought that. I know I did for a while. Um, you know, let's let's if you go from that ten percent protein extreme to sixty percent by eating egg white and and uh, chicken breast and broccoli, people just won't make that transition easily. So it's a matter of okay, let's look at my current diet, make those substitutions progressively. I'll get sustainable progress and uh, I can keep dialing it up if I want to but if I'm making great progress and enjoying the food no need to go more hardcore than that yeah no I like it and there are a number of things I want to pick up on um first I'll tell you a story about our great mate Professor Grant Schofield, who, when we discovered, <laughs> he's, he's great, uh, when we discovered keto, I remember walking into his office and he was drinking like cream with whey protein and that's all he drank throughout the day. And he's like, but it doesn't spike my insulin. I'm good. It's fat. At least you got, least got the whey protein. <laughs> no, that's true. But actually on that though, you've mentioned a couple of times now about the um, insulin, about fat's effect on insulin. And I feel like this is something that people aren't aware of. Can you sort of describe how fat yeah. does impact on insulin, Marty? Yeah. Um, it, it's complex. And because we don't see it on our CGMs, we think yes. fats are free food. But um, glucose, will, carbs will spike your insulin or come back straight down. So the area under the curve is quite it's, – it's abrupt, but it's sort of small. Protein doesn't really affect blood sugars that much. It may be up or down depending on if you're insulin resistant or not and how much – gluconeogenesis happen is happening if you're type 2 diabetic and you've got some level of insulin resistance it's actually better to prioritize the protein to improve your insulin resistance and lose body fat but in terms of fat fat will digest over a longer period of time maybe you know five to eight hours um, and, and therefore we see in my, my wife and son's CGM and in our data-driven fasting challenge that um, the fat will stop your blood glucose from returning below normal to the point that you're dipping into your stored energy for longer. So if you have a, a lower carb, lower fat food, your blood sugar will drop below what's normal for you. You'll be below your trigger that we call it in DDF sooner and you can eat again sooner because you're tapping into your stored energy. But really the, the big factor of fat is that it, it's easily stored so it doesn't require a lot of insulin to store your body just says you know welcome aboard whereas with carbohydrate your body says well we can only you know hold so much of that in our blood and our glycogen our liver and our muscles so we just need to hold all the stored energy back in our body 
now until we burn off the carbohydrate. But with fat, it just says, you know, welcome aboard. We love fat. We need plenty of fat to store. To store. We've got heaps of room for that. But then as the stored energy on your body increases more and more and more, you need more insulin to stop your body disintegrating. So a type 1 diabetic will be taking more and more basal insulin and someone who's not injecting insulin, their pancreas will be working 24-7, whether they're eating or not, to have a higher basal insulin, a higher fasting insulin level that will stop their body from disintegrating. So the real root cause of insulin resistance is energy toxicity. It's having too much energy in your body that you need more insulin. Your pancreas is working overtime more and more and more to stop your body from disintegrating into your bloodstream. So yeah, I, the, the, the shift for me was seeing insulin as an anti-catabolic hormone that stops your body from breaking down like an uncontrolled type 1 diabetic rather than a, an anabolic hormone that you, know, you see um, bodybuilders injecting insulin to grow bigger muscles, but really what that's doing is is stopping the muscles breaking down. It's not as much building their muscles and forcing energy into the cells that's stopping it breaking down. So once you see insulin as an anti-catabolic hormone, you go, oh yeah, it's just the break for my metabolism that stops the energy flowing into my bloodstream. Interesting. So if someone is on a keto approach and they're measuring their blood sugar, if they have, so their blood sugars could actually still be elevated, do you I've seen this actually, elevated blood sugars yeah. due to not the carbohydrate but but actually the fat content in their diet. Yeah, yeah, and really the concept of oxidative priority is really yeah. fascinating as well. Really you, you, your body has to burn off the glucose first and then the fat. You're always burning fat and carbs but if you've got a lot of fat in your body and a lot of carbs, the body will be prioritising burning the carbohydrate first as a priority but if you've got a lot of fat in your body or in your diet it, the, the glucose sort of gets stacked up in your body to the point that it has to focus on burning the carbohydrate first so if you've got a lot of fuels in your body you'll still see high glucose and you know your body's producing glucose through gluconeogenesis from your protein and Really, a high average blood sugar is just an indication, again, of energy toxicity, which is an indication you'll have high basal insulin because you've got a lot of fuel stored in your body. So the way to bring everything down, your insulin and your blood sugars, the overall average across the day is to drop your overall body fat levels by prioritizing satiety, not just managing the little blips in the first two hours after you eat on your CGM. Yeah, interesting. And I... Um, I I wonder whether that's the premise for Richard Bernstein's approach because he is low carb, but he's certainly not high fat. Oh uh, yeah, uh, Doctor B is. Um, yeah, he's never been wrong. Basically, <laughs> no. he's incredibly smart through all the the fads and misinformation. You go back to to Bernstein, and he's always spot on. And he's a protein focused. Use fat as a lever if you need more energy. Fat's a great source for people with diabetes. But if you need to dial back body fat, then you need to dial back dietary fat a little yeah, bit. Yeah, yeah, for sure. It's not a zero fat no. diet, but... Um, it's interesting what you say about satiety and fat because, of course, a lot of the 
language around fat when the low-carb, high-fat diet came up was that it's so satisfying and you just eat very little. But actually in my yeah. clinical experience, I feel like men actually are more um, satisfied, satisfied by fat than, than women appear to be. Really? I've always pushed protein up for women uh, and been less... I've noticed less that fat um, that men would overeat fat necessarily, and I don't know whether anything in your data has mm. any sort of sex difference anywhere, and maybe not even there, but but anywhere. Yeah, really, really. The the major thing is that men tend to carry more muscle, and muscle is a, the major driver of your basal me metabolic rate. So you'll be using more energy if you've got more muscle mass. So, um, yeah, you, you, your BMR is going to be a lot higher if you're carrying a lot more muscle and maybe men can tolerate the the extra energy from fat a little bit more. Yeah, but, interesting. Yeah, interesting. But and, and like the fat bombs and everything we make to give ourselves comfort when we reduce carbs and uh, believe that fat is a free food, it's a bit of a bit of a trap. So, yeah, again, it's not that fat, is a bad source of energy, but just if you want to reduce the, the energy on your body, you need to prioritise the nutrients your body needs and then your body says, oh, I've got everything I need and a whole lot of stored energy. Why do I need to keep on eating because I've got all the nutrients I need and your appetite settles down and that's where the magic happens is the, the big finding from the data analysis. Yeah, totally. And and a lot of it can be behaviour driven as well. And I'm just thinking about the woman who moved from a low fat to a high fat diet and suddenly the carrots at afternoon tea turn to those fat bombs yeah, and then yeah. suddenly peanut butter is back on the menu. And yeah. peanut oh, butter. Yeah. I used to, you know, cream and peanut butter and yogurt, and I still struggle with the peanut butter. But you know, I'm going now. If I need to get my ketones up, I'll just eat the oh, peanut butter. So yummy! This I love this keto diet and <laughs> getting my ketones up. But I don't look so good. What hmm, wait up! What's going <laughs> let, on? Let me think a bit more. Yeah, yeah. Let me think a bit more. Maybe just chasing elevated ketones wasn't the you know only goal. If that was coming from dietary yeah. fat but yeah and that that's i suppose how i transitioned to go let's look at what actually helps with satiety because not everybody's a type 1 diabetic that needs to stabilize the insulin and blood sugars as their primary goal you know i think 90 95 percent of people are interested in keto um want body composition in weight loss you know and that's where you look to the the bodybuilding community who Eric Helms and whoever else, they, they, they get adequate protein without excess energy and then it turns out to be adequate nutrients without excess energy. It's not just protein. Yeah. Marty, with your data sets, obviously you're diet agnostic but very few people actually are. Like when you look at – Yeah. When you look at, say, paleo and keto, which nutrients across your data set um, do, would, might they – struggle to sort of meet micronutrient-wise? Because we often uh, sort of uh, relate micronutrient deficiencies to people who follow a plant-based approach, but I imagine yep. there are some issues in that keto paleo space as well. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, with the 140,000 days of data, I've run the multivariate regression analysis through it and the biggest cravings in that for our data set, which the average is a 16% carbohydrate, 30% protein diet. So it's a fairly low-carb, paleo-ish, you know, 
um, wouldn't say keto depending on what your definition of keto is because keto isn't usually 30% protein. It's usually a bit lower. But um, the biggest factors that drive satiety in that data set are you know, protein percentage, potassium, calcium, sodium, and then other um, vitamins and minerals sort of pop up and, and play a, a role occasionally. So um, potassium is, is the non-starchy green veggies that people seem to crave as well. Yeah. It's not just the protein that people crave. Um, yeah, so some people on paleo keto are getting their, their serve of non-starchy veggies, but not everybody is. Mm. So. That's, I find that really surprising that, potassium craving because I saw that you you wrote about that and yeah. people often justify eating chocolate because of magnesium and I haven't actually ever seen that really backed up anywhere um, <laughs> in science but uh but I'd never actually heard that potassium was potentially a nutrient that um might be leveraged a little bit the way that protein might be is that is that how how you view it yeah, there's a number of ways to view it. You can either say we actually have distinct cravings for these nutrients or um, foods that contain more potassium and calcium and sodium and a whole array of essential nutrients per calorie contain more of those nutrients per calorie are more satiating and harder to overeat. So, Or I suppose what we're trying to do is say these are the people that thrive and eat less and these are the people who eat, eat more yes. and overeat and are obese and what are the quantitatively what are the characteristics of their diet um, and it, you know we definitely seem to have sodium cravings yeah. um, and potassium is also important in our body and like some people say that in in days gone by sodium was really hard to get and potassium was in everything so we've developed distinct conscious cravings for sodium but maybe we don't have the same taste for potassium but maybe we still crave that but yeah i suppose we're trying to quantify diets and characteristics of diets that align with lower overall calorie intake which is um yeah but it's basically overall nutrient density and getting enough for the nutrients that your diet is not currently providing mm. and of course your plant-based peeps i mean iron b12 and zinc are three that i yeah omega-3 omega bioavailable protein mm. yeah what about yeah. uh things like the creatine and carnitine and and cholesterol. Like yeah, that all definitely come with the, the red meat. Interestingly, cholesterol, um, I've been diving into that a lot lately. If you can, if you look at cholesterol, it's got a, it seems to have a separate, distinct satiety response to cholesterol that's positive. So people who eat more cholesterol tend to eat less and it's like okay, you've got protein leverage, but yeah. once you start to factor in minerals, protein some of the, the satiety response to protein is redistributed to the minerals. And then once you consider cholesterol, you know, protein leverage comes down more. So it seems it's not just protein leverage, but rather nutrient leverage that your body craves the nutrients that you need more of right now. So yeah, on an omnivorous diet, A and B12 and even protein are sometimes quite easy to get, but it's the the harder to find nutrients in your current diet and people eat different 
keto diets or, or paleo diets or plant-based diets. Everybody's diet is unique and that's where in the Micros Masterclass, tracking your current diet and working out what the gaps are and filling those in with food is sort of the ultimate level of, of optimization of your diet. Yeah, it's so interesting. And I wonder with, I mean, cholesterol is, is essential, well, it's essential for the mm. body, although we produce like 80%. 80%. Yeah, but mm. it is yeah. required for our immune system and hormones and, and things like that, right? Yeah, totally, yeah. totally. Um, yeah, and it makes sense that your body might crave it a little bit to supplement the cholesterol you need. And yeah, people with high cholesterol, it's typically a energy toxicity issue. Yeah. That it's not just cholesterol in your bloodstream. You've got all the, the excess fat in your bloodstream and glucose, and it's when you get the high LDL and glucose at the same time, you get oxidized LDL. So again, it comes back to avoiding foods through a combination of fat and carbs together, which is the basic formula for modern processed junk food, mm. and you don't want high levels of carbs and fat in your food or glucose and fat in your blood, and it's just an unnatural combination that wouldn't have naturally happened in you know, before the creation of modern processed foods, we would have had, you know, potentially carbs in summer and fat in winter, but not sugar, starch and seed oils continually available around the clock, 24-7, 365 days a year. Yeah. Okay. So you mentioned seed oils. I'm interested yeah. to know your perspective on them because I've, of course, came at this from the Mark Sisson, Rob Wolf, circa 2009 they're the devil. I do believe that those guys have moved on, actually, since that. So what's your take on seed oils, Marty? Um, or, or is it too contentious? The, no, 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 no. Happy, happy to dive in. Um, my take is really quite simple. Um, if you look at the 1977 dietary goals for Americans, they sort of said cholesterol is bad, fat's bad, but, you know, unsaturated fat is, is not bad. Um, so it basically gave a free pass to carbohydrate and monounsaturated fat. And that was really convenient because the whole food system was starting to shift towards seed oils, plant-based oils. Um, from the 1950s, you see cholesterol starts to drop. But back from 1910, when they started to increase monocrop ag agriculture and um, extract polyunsaturated fats from seeds. The, the the amount of seed oil we've been intaking from 1910 has just continued to climb over the last 100 years and it's gone up by 800 calories per person per day in the US food system. It's obscene. It the amount of um, total fat, so that's total fat, I think um, monounsaturated fat, is the majority of that and polyunsaturated fat has jumped up a fair bit. And if you look at rapeseed oil and palm oil and all these sorts of things, it's not people eating a lovely Mediterranean diet, sprinkling a bit of olive oil on their salads with the sardines or salmon on the side. It's just, you know, ultra-processed food has just gone from... Uh, in, in 1999, um, Splendor was approved and food manufacturers were able to move from high fructose corn syrup, which was sort of falling out of favour. Food manufacturers went, you know, beauty, I'll uh, just, you know, switch the high fructose corn syrup for 
industrial seed oils, mm. put some flavours and colours, and you know, arguably, you know, high fructose corn syrup's not great, but arguably the monounsaturated fat, I think, is even more bioavailable, low dietary-induced thermogenesis energy source yeah. that's just going to go straight into our body. So if our total intake of fat has increased by 800 calories per person per day over the last 100 years, you don't need a conspiracy theory about they create greater oxidization or they're yeah. metabolized different or poof as a different. It's just we're eating so much more of them in ultra-processed food that's got sugars, starch, seed oils, flavors, colors, yeah. and a few synthetic crappy vitamins thrown in to make the package look better. That is a very sensible sort of explanation for the problem with industrial seed oils, I think, because you're right, it's, you don't have to necessarily it's not anything really about inflammation other than the inflammation that might occur from energy toxicity because we're eating too much. Totally. Yep. Totally, yeah. totally, yeah. And in energy toxicity will create inflammation full stop. You don't need another more complex mechanism that, you know, I think you may may win and you may lose that argument. I don't have the biochem chops to, to argue on that level. But if you say we're just eating a lot and our processed food, you look pick up an Oreo cookie or a Dorito or any other packaged food with a label and a barcode in the center aisles of your supermarket, it's the same formula, sugar, flour, seed oil, colors, flavorings, yeah. and fortification. It's, it's the same, same food, formula. Yeah. And it's super cheap because we've just dumped – fossil fuel fertilizer made from non-renewable methane gas into our food system to grow food quicker with more yield but less nutrition. Yeah, so interesting. Marty, um, changing tax a little bit because I like to do that and I've got and we're about a third of the way through my question so we're not going to make it through. That's fine. That's fine. We can do the part exactly. two. Um, so today I got a um, an article through my Eating Well subscription because they do have some great recipes and it said that Weight Watchers has relaunched yet another version of their program. And wow. this time... Last one didn't work. Oh, I up? think that there are just multiple iterations, but it's called an evolution, Marty. I mean, we've changed. They've changed. They've changed. Uh, except they, they start doing things like making certain foods free foods, of which you can eat as much of this food as you like without having cool. to count it. And it's, it's surprising to me, because I just happened to be reading it because I was mildly curious, that potato is considered <laughs> a free food. Now... I yeah. So I am familiar with something called the satiety index that yep. did show that a, I think it was a boiled potato was the most, yep. I can't remember, they called it the most satisfying or satiating food. And you'll need to explain the difference for us, please, of satiety yep. and satiation. Um, yeah. But what's up with potatoes and what actually, I mean, you've mentioned protein, but are there some surprising satisfying foods, foods that create satiety that you've found? Yeah, the um, 1997 University of Sydney Satiety Index um, was fascinating work. Um, it, it looked at 38 data points. I think you were probably part of the guinea pig cohort in, uh, in New Zealand that sort of continued that work with the glycemic index and it was all part of the same movement. It was really fascinating and great work for the time, but um, I looked at that and went 38 data points, 38 different foods, half of them are sponsored by, are owned by Kellogg's who sponsored the study. Oh, interesting. Um, you know, <sighs> Kellogg's 
SDA. You know, <laughs> don't need to bring in too many conspiracy theories, no. but um, that's not even a conspiracy theory, uh, isn't that just? Yeah, yeah well, it's it's just historical <laughs> yeah. truth, which is completely <laughs> fascinating. And people who think it's a conspiracy, I grew up in the SDA church, and everything Belinda Fetke bangs on about is is reality, <laughs> and, and my my youth. So. Um, but the potato um, is fascinating. It was a cooked and cooled potato, so you've got resistant starch, which may be interesting. Uh, and the potato will spike your glucose and insulin over the short term. And then a couple of hours later, they tested uh, how much people ate at the next meal a couple of hours later, and people ate less after the cooked and cooled potato, which A, is fairly bland. If you're not adding oil and salt, it's going to be a yeah can't eat too much of that food and I'm going to be fairly full. Um, things like the, the, the fast-acting carbs will boost your glucose and your insulin and like I mentioned before, your body will say, hey, I've got heaps of energy in my bloodstream. I really need to burn off this carbohydrate really quickly. So I'm going to raise insulin and stop the release of stored energy or slow the release of stored energy from my body. So you're going to be satiated in the in the short term. You're going to get a short-term satiety response. But what happens, you know, 10, 12, 24 hours later after that, are you still going to be satiated? What ha usually happens is two or three hours later, your blood sugar crashes, your blood sugar is lower than normal, and then you're fanging for chips, potatoes, whatever else to bring your blood sugar back up. So that's where people on a low-fat, high-carb diet tend to be eating all the time because they need to be topping up all the time. Um, yeah, our data looks at daily intake across the day. So it's daily calorie intake for people measuring um, their daily diet again and again and again. So we can get a really nice look at what happens across the day, not just over the short term. So in that respect, it's protein, fiber, um, potassium, calcium, sodium, and and all the other nutrients yeah, seem to play a sort of a role under those main nutrients. So long-term satiety feeling satiated across the day is, is more a factor of nutrient density, yeah. whereas short-term satiety is how much did you fill your stomach up? I'm so stuffed, I can't eat anymore. I physically can't fit any more food in. But there's no guarantee that you're not going to be face down in donuts and peanut butter five hours yeah. later because you're starving, hungry. So I think when you, you know, I, I really want to turn the conversation about satiety to long-term satiety, what enables you to eat less across the whole day, yeah. not just the next meal in a laboratory experiment. Yeah, no, I love that. And Marty, if I'm thinking about fat loss with that, I wonder, if have you analysed the data? And look, I know everyone is different, but an average sort of calorie intake for someone who is losing weight, do you have like data like that? Like you'll know that 35-year-old men can lose weight um, on X number um, of calories. Have you looked at that? Yeah, we, we generally have like most diet programs probably other than yours who is Ironman triathletes. Um, most people are sort of at middle-aged menopausal female and they tend to be losing weight on the 1,500 calories a day-ish on average, um, depending on how much muscle mass they're holding. So the more muscle mass, the more calories they burn. So that's where it's really important to have some resistance training, have some exercise and eat the protein to build the lean mass to, to build that metabolic engine that actually burns the energy. Because if you lose your metabolic engine, you just have to drop your calories more and more and more and more. And, you know, 
you're just going to be cold, miserable and really hungry and that doesn't last for too long. No, yes, I totally agree. And actually only about 30% of my people are Ironman triathletes. I've got a lot of those <laughs> middle pay, middle-aged menopausal uh, women. That, that will probably be true. But what I find interesting in the whole discussion around calories is there's a real pushback against low-calorie diets as well. You know, like, no, no, you shouldn't have to um, sort of – eat only 1300 calories a day you should be able to eat more and you you know and the rhetoric that sort of goes with that whereas in my experience there are just some people who need 1300 calories actually yeah. and that's what it takes yeah. for them to lose weight and of course it depends on how much weight they've got to lose as well and yeah yeah and, and if you're a moderately sedentary middle-aged female with who's losing muscle mass, then it's, it's a different game to your Ironman triathlete. They might be be able to pound through 5,000 calories, calories a day and maintain a, a six-pack, but it's just completely different. And the, um, did you see the study from Robin Hunter and Simpson uh, looking at menopausal weight loss and, and weight, uh, sorry, menopausal weight gain? Oh, no, tell me about this. Um, they, they basically explain that... Um, in menopause, um, estrogen and FSH decrease, which leads to a, a loss of muscle mass, mm. basically. So then people sense their loss of muscle mass, the body upregulates appetite for protein, and when we keep eating the same trashy, low-protein foods, we gain body fat. So the again, it's dialing back the fat and carbs and prioritizing protein, and we definitely see in our programs it's the – it's not the athletes on the higher protein percentage diet. It's those um, middle-aged, older females that tend to thrive on the 40%, 50% protein diet and everything falls into place and it's really a beautiful thing and they get really excited and have great success. But if they're prioritizing protein and nutrients and the size of their plate is massive, but they put it into chronometer and it's like, oh, this is so few calories. Mm. I can't believe how full I feel on so much food and it doesn't contain hardly any calories. That's the realisation once you prioritise protein and, and nutrient density. Yeah, and and you're a fan of protein sparing modified fast, which is what I use in my Monday's Matter program. And you did a, a, a wonderful blog that really detailed out sort of the research behind it, which is there is definitely some scientific sort of clinical trials, but a lot of it comes sort of mm. from real world experiences as, yeah. as well. And the body it's what works for the bodybuilding community. You know, and and I like and so we utilize it as almost a fasting mimicking approach. Like the five two, yep. but instead we have protein sparing days as opposed to just those low calorie yeah. days. Yeah, it's a great yeah, idea. Yeah, yeah, because you're right. Like to do something like that um, day in, day out, like they did in the clinical trials. I mean, one, if you're not being monitored every day via, you know, mm. then it's very difficult to maintain. Um, but also, mm. you're not being taught the habits and behaviors that will lead to sustainable fat loss. Yeah. Mm. Mm. How do you use it? Yeah, Marty? definitely. Um, yeah, I suppose as I mentioned before, it's a very sharp, shiny, powerful tool yeah. that in the hands of people who don't understand what they're doing, which is most of us, mm -hmm. um, it doesn't always end well if you try to chronically push to extremes. So what you're doing with the occasional day of PSMF is a great way to reset and get a, a fasting mimicking diet without losing your 
um, muscle mass, which is great. In our macros masterclass, we sort of say, what are you eating now? If you're eating 20% protein, let's try to treat that, you know, maybe getting 100 grams of protein, treat that as a minimum, and then dial back your fat and carbs progressively week on week and develop new habits around your day-to-day food intake so that at the end you've transformed how you eat. So everything we do moves people towards the protein spring modified fast, mm. really high protein percentage, but um, it, it's a moving towards in that direction just enough to get half to 1% weight loss per week. But if you get greater than 1% weight loss per week, Nutrient Optimizer will give you back calories and nice. say, hey, slow down a little bit, Tiger. You're um, maybe pushing things a little bit fast and you may end up binging. Yeah. And that'd be sad. And we don't want you to you know, undo all your great work with the donuts and peanut butter and pizza that you'll probably be gravitating to mindlessly yeah. to survive. Are they your foods, Marty? You've n- mentioned them a number of times now. <laughs> oh, peanut peanut butter is my diabolical yeah. kryptonite <laughs> yeah. that uh, you know, I ask the family to hide from me if it's in the if it's in the uh, <laughs> In the house, so <laughs> um, I like that what you've said there with the that your system is able to guide people on adding back in calories, like um, mm. Carbon Diet Coach, that Lane Norton yeah. and Holly Baxter's app. Like that's what I love about that app is that it's that if you are putting in the right data, then the data is correct for and and will help guide. And I think people can lose their intuition around food satiety hunger, mm. all of it, and also how quickly or, or slowly um, weight loss and what, what's appropriate. Mm. Mm. Yeah, tracking is really, really valuable. Um, most people hate it and not everybody does it, and that's why people love data-driven fasting that just uses the glucose meter to guide when and what you eat. But tracking your food for a few weeks is invaluable and people just, like you said, they, they go, oh, I didn't realise how much fat I was. Oh, my gosh, yeah. I thought these were these were free foods in keto. You know, potatoes are free foods in Weight Watchers. Uh, in Weight Watchers. <laughs> yeah. I mean, let, let, let's say in my world, you know, asparagus, spinach, egg whites, you know, shrimp, they might be the free foods because yeah. they're impossible to overeat. Yeah, yeah. But, uh, yeah. Um, so, Marty, We've talked a lot about food, and I'd really love to finish up by talking about fasting and yep. your data-driven fasting program because I feel like you take a much more physiological approach to it than just being very structured around a certain time window. So can you sort of describe mm. um, what actually, what is the program? Yeah, um, it's just use your glucose as a fuel gauge and rather than stressing about how much it rises after you eat and trying to flatline your blood sugar by adding peanut butter to your carbs or clothing your carbs with fat or the, the, the latest fat on Instagram for achieving flatline blood sugar, the most important thing you can manage is your glucose before you eat next. So if your glucose is dropped below what's normal for you, then at that point you're legitimately hungry and you've started to tap into your stored body fat. It's like, Bonza, good work, you're legitimately hungry, have a good meal, uh, time to eat again. And people typically get to eat you know, one, two, three times a day depending on what they eat. And they quickly learn to think of how will this meal affect my glucose in not just one hour, two hours, but three or four or five hours before the next meal. And once they start to gamify that process and understand their body, they're able to sustainably use sort of a progressive overload approach with their glucose by 
chasing a lower premial glucose trigger that enables them to to lose weight without tracking their calories. Mm. So, yeah, it's really um, it was just an idea that was inspired by um, some work done at University of Otago about five years ago when after some a bulking phase when you know you get big and strong and maybe put in a bit more fluff than you want to I designed a spreadsheet and shared it on Facebook and everybody loved it and it blew up and changed my life mm. and I quit my job and I just guide people to console them and guide them about their glucose all day so yeah it's, it's a whole lot of fun and, and works really well and there's a great little community around yeah it. amazing so when you say that your blood sugar would drop below normal like in my head my blood sugar drops below normal and I feel irritable and I definitely notice those low, mm. low blood sugar um uh, patterns and I've got to say there are these protein bars yeah. which are keto which do it to me and I had one yesterday and I noticed it as well. I'm like, oh, I should not have just had that by itself. Your blood sugar drops after you eat. Yeah. So yeah, after about two hours, yeah. because I think it must have it spikes as well, because I've seen it spike before yeah. I see GM. So to what level should people push it? Um, well, just a little bit. Okay. Uh, again, I'm all about just a little bit, uh, and and rather than going, oh, you know, the best fasting if if. 24 doesn't work if you go 22 2 and then alternate day and then why don't you fast the whole week and then what do you eat at the end of that week you know what do people eat they they they're so hungry yeah. they're again it's the it's not egg whites and shrimp <laughs> no no yeah. exactly and, and and they're refeeding on keto and which is just high fat fat bombs potentially or whatever mm. it's going to be the most energy dense food that they feel they've earned. I, that, at least that's my experience when I was doing the extended fasting. Uh, but data-driven fasting guides you to, in the first three days, you get your average pre-meal glucose before you eat normally over three days. And then after that, for five days, all you have to do is get just below that and you go, good work, time awesome. to eat. Okay, I get you've, that. You've, you've actually got just below it. And then if you successfully get below that on a regular basis, you're pre-meal trigger will continue to drop progressively like a progressive overload program for your body for four weeks and then at the end of four weeks we go that's enough take a break for a few weeks you can come back and and start again and it just it's like a yeah a progressive overload program in the gym progressive overload for your metabolism and yeah similarly um interesting you talked about protein dropping your blood sugar most people find in the morning when their blood sugar is high they can have a, a protein focused meal and it'll actually drop their blood sugar and they can eat again sooner so it isn't the protein in there that drops my blood or spikes and drops it it's the uh fiber they use to make it a low carb keto bar yeah mm. yeah which which might be why it spikes a lot of people find the blood sugar on a processed keto High protein, whatever you want to delicious call it, processed bar. bars, delicious. <laughs> yeah. I, you know, we, we've got those Masashi oh, bars here. That's my other mates, kryptonite. Yes. The cookies and cream. It's like, yeah, it's high protein. It's forty percent protein, but I just ate five. Wait <laughs> yeah. up. Yeah. <laughs> our, uh, our good friend Professor Grant Schofield also uh, shared his experience with me about those Masashi bars a couple of weeks ago. Similar thing. Yeah. He's like, oh, they're great. They've got forty grams of protein, but we can't buy any more. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. And, and and the cookies and cream protein powder. Oh, yeah, yes. I can just keep chowing down on that forever. That's dangerous they do a great stuff. Job. Just because it's so <laughs> it's so hyper palatable. Yeah. It's great for marketing, yeah. but yeah, whole food is definitely yeah, better for sure. if you want to get real satiety and real nutrients. Um, yeah. Anyway, it, it just gamifies DDF. Just gamifies the 
the lowering of your blood sugar process and teaches you to reflect on how did that meal influence my blood sugar? Do I need to prioritize protein, dial back carbs, dial back fat without necessarily tracking your food? And then people can do the macros masterclass if they want to quantify it a little bit more if they get fascinated yeah, by nice. it. Yeah, nice. And to do DDF, do you need a CGM or, or are you okay with a glucometer? Yeah, actually a, a standard glucometer is not only a whole lot cheaper, yeah. especially outside America, um, it, it's much more accurate. So accuracy is important yes. for for DDF and um, blood glucose is, you know, the CGMs me measure interstitial fluid, which is a different compartment in yeah. the body and potentially lagging and not as accurate and can be more affected by by exercise and yeah the, the different companies in the states have staff doctors that prescribe a cgm so it's covered by healthcare and they just charge for their app but um the rest of the world unfortunately doesn't have that perk mm. or a loophole that uh yeah so a normal old glucometer is is perfect and even better so yeah just the we use the contour next one glucometer which is um super yeah. cool so marty um a couple of questions just to finish up. One, yep. what do you eat? How often do you eat? Uh, two or three times a day. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I'm generally Musashi bars and riding my bike. No. And, <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> um, what did I have? I had some yogurt and protein powder, but not the Musashi dangerous <laughs> stuff uh, before because my blood sugar was a little bit low. Yeah. My wife makes these amazing salads that I put uh, tin fish on and then she'll make amazing dinners that are, are low-carb and yummy and, and plenty of veggies. Um, we have lots of kangaroo here, oh, which is yes. what I go for if I'm, if I'm looking for a high-protein, nutritious food. Um, eggs for snacks, they're great. Sometimes if I'm trying to lose weight, I'll give a couple of the yolks to the dog who loves yeah, them. Yeah, and, uh, yeah. yeah. So. Nice. And um, I actually – and one question which I forgot to ask at the time when we were talking about potatoes yeah. – do you have any idea on what that cooked and cooled potato does to blood sugar, but also the calories available? Like I've looked for information and yeah. haven't found any. There's been a lot of talk about resistant starch, but I haven't seen that much hard, hard data. So, yeah, I th usually people go, yeah, I tried the cooked and cooled potato, but my blood sugar was still a mess and, and spikes. So I don't see a lot of people going, yeah, I'm getting zero blood sugar response from a cooked and cooled potato. I think that's what we need to do is run a study and actually just enroll people <laughs> to the potato diet. Let's see what actually happens. You've got the spreadsheet. Surely you can write a spreadsheet about that. But a potato is a great hack if your blood sugars are really low to just boost your blood sugar back up with some starchy carbs. Totally. Um, and it just smashes your hunger. So then when you go to actually eat your meal – you're not ravenous and going to overeat. But, yeah, again, um, obviously potato plus seed oils plus salt equals, you know, yummy chips. So that, that's where you get into trouble with the carb-fat combo together that we're all chowing down on super delicious. Especially if you team it with, like, ketchup and the craft beer. That's, like, yeah. danger. <laughs> <laughs> not, not that I would know. Of course I would because I love it. <laughs> you're up.
You're off to the pub after the interview. Yeah, I know. It's great. Maddie, um, <laughs> look, thank you so much for your time. And, and, and I would love to chat. You've got so much information on your website, which is just freely available. And for people mm. who are super interested in understanding their metabolism and, and food and how it impacts it, like you've just provided so much value. And your programs are, are just equally very good value for what you're able to provide. Mm. So can you just let people know? Thank you. Where to find them? Yeah, um, optimizingnutrition.com is the blog. I just keep on having random thoughts and trying to put numbers behind it and write a blurb to try and explain it. Um, yeah, so optimizingnutrition.com. And if you search for optimizing nutrition, we've got a YouTube channel and Twitter and Instagram and a whole lot of stuff on Facebook. Um, yeah, and then if you search for data driven fasting, is our most popular program that just uses your glucose as a fuel gauge. Um, just we've got a great community that, that's built up around that. And then we've got a macros masterclass and a micros masterclass if you want to track your food for a few weeks and dial in your macros and micros to align with your goals that's awesome uh you're not on tiktok no no life's too short for tiktok kind of times, <laughs> it, it, even oh, i'm gonna get some instagram advice from you because that does my head in i just i just want to write stuff not uh, not be performing on on social no, media i get it but. i get it and you write very well so thankfully you can stick to the the stuff you're good at not that you wouldn't be good at tiktok i'm sure but you know I, i'm sure i could you know do a little shake or something. <laughs> i don't know maybe, maybe i think i think my world my, my wife said you can uh, post gym selfies or be married so i'm pretty sure the same <laughs> would apply to me being on tiktok that's brilliant that's great hey uh thanks so much Marty, and uh enjoy the rest of your day hey thanks so much mickey great to chat really enjoyed it all right team Hopefully you really got a lot from that and I just love listening to Marty talk about what he does. I've heard him on a number of other podcasts and I'm super excited to meet him in person over at Low Carb Denver. Speaking of Low Carb Denver, next week on the podcast, I speak to Dr. Jeffrey Gerber, a family physician and Denver's diet doctor, about his work in both individualizing diet based on a person's insulin sensitivity, but also in his role within the community, helping spread education and information around the power of diet to help with wellness and longevity. So Jeffrey started in low carbohydrate diets and has expanded this through creating low carb conferences, including the Low Carb Denver, which is coming up at the end of February. And look, it is just such a great conversation and um, I think you're going to really enjoy the conversation I have with Jeffrey. All right, team. Until then, though, you can catch me over on Facebook at Mickey Willardin Nutrition, over on Instagram and Twitter at Mickey Willardin, or over on my website, mickeywillardin.com, where you can sign up to any number of my programs, including Real Food Nutrition, Keto Longevity Plan, Flow Fat Loss Plan for Women or the Man Plan, or sign up to the Mondays Matter waitlist. That is coming up fast for Mondays Matter Shreduary Edition. And that is all over on MickeyWillardin.com. All right, team, you have a fabulous week. Talk soon.